are listening to Think Funny with Aaron Donnelly, Nate Sadler, and Matt Donnelly. For show notes and to check out Aaron's books, please visit AaronDonnelly.com. And now, the show that only thinks it's funny, the Think Funny Podcast. Welcome to the Think Funny Podcast. This is Aaron Donnelly. I'm here with my co-host, Nate Sadler. Hey, all you phonies. <laughs> and Matt Donnelly. Hello, guys. And today, we're going to talk about J.D. Salinger and the Catcher in the Rye. Did you guys read it in high school? First time I read it was actually uh, a couple days ago. Yeah, what do you think? I liked it. I mean, yeah. uh, well, it took it took a bit of a while to get used to it because he swears so much, and I'm not really used to reading that, uh, just because I don't read a lot of nonfiction. Yeah, uh, I mean fiction. So, is there a Christian bookstore version that has like gosh and golly <laughs> and darn it? <laughs> no, it's bad. It just took me a while to get used to it. Uh, yeah. J.D. Salinger himself was apprehensive about releasing a book with so much profanity in it. Well, it's obviously, it's been banned or tried to be banned. It's not anymore, but back in the day from schools because of that and because of some other things that are in it. But it's weird, though, because it's so repetitive, too, like the swearing yes. and the phrases that he says. Mm-hmm. But if you study it, it's got weird nuances in the re- in the repetitions. So. Someone might say, oh, it's just so repetitive. He just keeps saying um, the same phrases over and over, but he actually kind of doesn't. Like they're actually thought out as to where they're at. It's obviously people have spent years studying these, his work, but Salinger himself spent 10 years writing this book and he would spend, you know, like a year writing a short story, um, mm-hmm. obsessing over every comma. So all of the words in it are intentional and repetitive on purpose. I like that fact because I feel like he creates a speech pattern. You know his manner of speech. Like if any of the three of us started speaking that way, we would know who we're trying to imitate. That's a master stroke. I've, so. I've never read a book where the character's voice is in your head so so much quickly and so deeply. That's a big attraction to it. Nate, Nate when did you first read it? I read it maybe the summer after my senior year. And I was absolutely, I mean, infatuated with it. It put into my mind the thing about always being genuine, just Holden's hate for phoniness. There's something about this book that like puts a mirror up to myself. Like I see parts of myself and Holden and they're not parts I like, but I still see myself. And like listening to the audio version of it again this week brings all that up. And it's, it, it kind of makes me feel bad because I feel like it brings up bad qualities about myself, but I still like it that it's that powerful that it can do that. Like what qualities about yourself? I just feel like I'm similar to Holden and he kind of thinks more of himself than he really is. Hmm. You know, he's really this failure, but he's always, uh, all he does basically the whole book is complain about other people when yeah. he's a failure, you yeah. know? And he just likes to make more of himself than he really is. He just basically ends up wandering around and everything he, he, you know, every interaction with a woman is a failure. Every, anything he tries to do, even when he tries to punch that guy, he misses, you know. He's got such a strong ego at the same time. He's like totally insecure and introverted about being exposed. It's just so that it creates this dichotomy, this weird, and it, it creates an energy from that, those two things. Yeah, I read it in high school just because I had heard about 
its part in the John Lennon assassination. So, and, I, and I always kind of heard rumors that like this book is like dangerous or evil or something. So I went to the Jefferson Library and I grabbed it. And you know, you, first thing you see is the cover. It's the red. The one I had was the red paperback cover. Even that is like alluring. There's no picture on it. And then you mm-hmm. open it up and it's like there's no forward. It just starts. And then when it's done, it's the last page and it's over. It feels like this piece of contraband that somehow got snuck into a library. And when was you're it, reading it. <clears throat> was yeah. it just on the regular shelf or did you have to yeah. go ask for it? No, it was I've, just on the regular shelf. I, I've heard some some places kind of make you have to go up to the front and ask for a copy. Oh, you know, we're yeah. going to end up on a list just by doing this podcast, <laughs> but I'm okay with that. Well, and just by reading it, I remember sitting down at the table for the first time and opening up and reading the first few pages and then kind of looking over your shoulder, like almost like hoping no one is watching you read this because it's so <laughs> almost embarrassing that you're reading it because it's so personal. And I don't know, it's weird. It says this weird effect that I've never read another book like it, but. It's um, uncomfortable. Speaking of the FBI, there's a book out there of a lady uh, called My Salinger Year, and she wrote it. It's her own memoir, but basically she it was, in, it was in the 90s, I think. She worked for Salinger's agent and would get letters. She had to read all of the letters that she got from fans to Salinger because Salinger didn't want to get them. She was told that if it, they were threatening or if they sounded crazy enough that the FBI wanted to know. So she had this like weird filter to the FBI on Salinger fan mail. You know, they've been associated, his book has been associated with three assassinations um, or assassination attempts. There's obviously the John Lennon with Mark David Chapman, and there's uh, Hinckley, the attempt on uh, Reagan. And then there's an actress, I can't remember her name, but a guy was focused on that book and, and killed an actress. Hinckley, I think, wasn't really tied to the book as much as they broke into his apartment after he did the attempt and they saw it on the table. He was really in the taxi driver, I think, was his thing because he wanted yeah. to impress Jody um, Foster. Yeah. But Mark David Chapman was absolutely obsessed with this book. He identified with Holden. He read an article about John Lennon and Esquire that had come out talking about how much money he had and how he'd kind of settled down into like bourgeois life. And he became obsessed with killing John Lennon as a way to protect the innocence potentially of John Lennon but also of you know the generation that was affected by the Beatles because John Lennon had turned into a phony. So in his mind, that made sense. And he read it as part of his defense on the stand. He read the part about Holden being the catcher in the rye. Now, I'm not a murderer, but uh, I, I have a hard time, and it's probably why I have a hard time making the, the leap from, yeah. uh, from the book to actually come up with this plan to kill John Lennon. I just, I don't follow. I mean, I have a hard time with it. Well, Matt, I am a murderer. And <laughs> let me tell you, no, I, yeah, that's the thing too, is you can love a book and maybe find it interesting and maybe a little disturbing, but to take that kind of leap, I, I can't even do the math in my head to make that kind of leap to no, no. say, I like this book. I think I'm going to kill John Lennon. <laughs> yeah. He was pretty crazy, Mark David Chapman. Yeah, he, he was. He heard the voices, he saw hallucinations. So, you know, what's Salinger's son Matt Salinger. Matt Salinger, yeah. He, I saw him interviewed recently. And he, actually, he was uh, an actor. He was in the 90s remake of uh, Captain America. Did you guys ever see that? Yes. No. Oh, yeah, he it's was. bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was Captain America. I think it came out sort of a rush job to capitalize when Batman got big. Everybody hated it. I'd have never seen it. Anyway, he said that, uh, you know, the way Salinger looked at it was right now the book has sold 72 million copies. One of them was a guy who was crazy. So the stats are pretty low. It just happened to be, you know, he happened to be crazy already before the book. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I read one interesting article, and it's and it was making an argument how he actually accomplished. Mark David Chapman actually accomplished what his goal was, which was to keep John Lennon sort of innocent, because John Lennon at the time had sort of in the seventies he had lived a sort of raucous lifestyle. Anyway, by killing John Lennon, the article said he John Lennon has now become this sort of sainthood figure in rock and roll. Whereas if John Lennon were allowed to live, he probably would have said stupid things and done stupid things and not been as applauded as he is now. It's kind of a weird thing to say, mm. but I thought it was interesting too. Do you guys study the life of J.D. Salinger? Yeah, I watched that uh, documentary, uh, yeah. Salinger, that, that you mentioned from 2013. It really gives insight into, because all you ever heard before about Salinger was that he was this recluse, like this Howard Hughes type of guy. Um, and it tracks a lot of that down to PTSD from World War II. Crazy that he was stormed the beaches of Normandy. And then he was also in another big battle. And then he was part of the liberation uh, of Paris. And then he uh, went around with other troops around all the concentration camps after the war. I mean, that's right. just awful. awful. He had like the full American experience of World yeah. War II. He was a Forrest Gump of World War II. Yeah. He was on like the first wave in D-Day, Battle of the Bulge, and the Battle of Hutkin, I don't know how to pronounce it, Forest. Mm-hmm. which were basically like the two worst American battles where Germany was like on its last legs and was like doing anything and everything to uh, fight to the death. And his division, the 12th, faced the worst death percentage of all Americans in the war. His 12th infantry had like 3,000 guys and 1,100 survived. In this forest, most of them died from just the elements, like freezing to death. And then he went and had to liberate a concentration camp, walked into it, you know, not knowing what they were going to see. And uh, his job during the time that he wasn't fighting was to be counterintelligence. He had to go in and interview uh, all of the uh, citizens in the towns they would come up to to see which ones had not, were Nazi sympathizers and to try and root out the people that were Nazis in hiding and stuff like that. And then he married a Nazi. Then he married a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> really weird. Yeah. It's such an interesting story. Uh, his, yeah. Uh, his life. They, the documentary said he had like almost 300 days of active combat. And like most, almost everyone goes insane after 200 days of active combat. And so you can say, you know, that he spent the rest of his life trying to accommodate for the PTSD that he suffered in World War II through his writing and his religion. Was he into like kind of Eastern religion stuff, wasn't he? Yeah, a version of Hinduism, um, Vedanta. And that's another element in setting Salinger that you realize, oh, this is why. Because that religion basically was all about not doing anything for personal gain, but only for the work itself. That's why he never published again. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about kind of isolation away from what they called women and gold being corrupt- corruptive influences. It sounds um, like he uh, liked the ladies, though. Yeah. There was a one girl that he wrote a letter to like every day. He was 53 at the time, and she was like 19. He was definitely obsessed with, just like Holden, with innocence and Maybe not even sexually, although he did, I think, have you know sexual affairs with younger you know women. But it was more like the allure of the innocence of them and watching them be innocent, which is what Holden does to find his peace at the end. And I think that's what he was trying to find um, in his affairs with these women. Now, it's, what's really interesting about Salinger, too, is he's done a ton of short story writing that a lot of them don't exist anymore. Or he's done, he did a lot of letter writing. And you can only read his letters 
in if you actually go and read the physical letters like they don't exist anywhere really? else Interesting. like yeah there's yeah so there's like a library in houston where you can go to and you it's not reprinted anywhere so you have to actually go and check it out and actually read those letters to see what he wrote Speaking of dating, you know, with Una O'Neill, the girl he was infatuated with around World War II, she breaks up with him and doesn't even tell him. And then she just marries Charlie Chaplin, which yeah, is like the most random thing to happen to somebody. He wrote a letter to them and included a cartoon that had uh, Chaplin holding his penis while, while he was chasing her around. <laughs> uh, I guess he, sent, he drew that and sent it to her. It's <laughs> a good move. Let's talk about Catcher in the Rye. There's uh, some definite symbolism that I think is interesting about Catcher in the Rye. So Holden has a red hunting hat that he wears. He calls it a people shooting hat instead of a hunting hat. Symbolism there is that that was his sort of identity or his individuality, something that made him special or unique. So he wears it as a way to, even though he feels invisible, to sort of stand out and have some identity. Yeah, I always thought of that as him showing that he's not a phony. He yeah. likes this red hunting hat and he's going to wear it even though it might be, other people might think it's goofy and weird. He's going to do it. And uh, it's it's red. His sister Phoebe has red hair. His brother Allie that died has red hair. It's somewhat of a callback to innocence too. The other thing is uh, the ducks in Central Park. He kind of becomes obsessed with what happens to them during the winter. They go um, to Subway. <laughs> they go to Subway. <laughs> Insert Mitch Hedberg joke. <laughs> and the, the general interpretation there is that it's a way for him to think about what's going to happen to him when things change. Is he going to die? Is he going to get frozen in time? And when he goes and checks out the ducks, it's in this sort of half hybrid state of frozen and not frozen. So that's kind of where he is as far as a child to an adult. But the ducks are, you know, obviously they, they are taken care of. They do leave when it's cold and they come back. I just um, think he loves the childlike nature of that question because that's yeah. a question a little kid could ask is where do the ducks go? You know, someone, you know, this age to ask that question is a little silly, but I think he likes to put that on because he likes to think about protecting the innocence of others because i think he knows that his is lost you know jane gallagher is the girl that he played checkers with he sort of idolizes the innocence of her um he remembers that she keeps her checkers in the back row king keep uh, the kings in the I, back row. yeah keep the kings in the back row i googled that that is actually a very common tattoo phrase for girls i didn't know that. really yeah huh. it's all over the internet frame stamp one <laughs> did you ask her if she still keeps her kings in the back row it's a way to say is she still this innocent sort of simple pure <laughs> thing just the phrase itself to uh catch her in the rye is based on a poem that a little kid is singing and he gets it wrong and Holden actually gets it wrong. It's the phrase is if a body meet a body in the rye and Holden changes it to, if you catch a body in the rye. So he actually twists it to his own version and Phoebe calls him on it and says, that's not how it is. It's if you meet a body in the rye, because what Holden is trying to do is actually catch. He's afraid that the kids are going to lose their innocence and fall off the cliff. He feels like he needs to catch them and save them, when in reality, the poem is just to meet them there and to help them through to be safe, to stay away from the cliff. And that's what he does in the end. So the growth and the change in Holden is very subtle, but it's seen at the end with Phoebe. He Holden says he's going to run away. Phoebe meets him with, her, with this big suitcase, and 
the moment when he takes the suitcase from her and he starts to be the parent to her, kind of say, all right, let's put the suitcase away. Let's walk down to the zoo. Let's do this. You can see the transition there. He's meeting her in the rye and helping her adjust to the trans to the uh, a difficulty she's having, and he's being mature. So that's how uh, Salinger sort of poses that you get away from accepting the loss of innocence is you become a parent and you help and meet others in the rye. That's how you transition. I think that's a huge moment at the end when he goes to her school and yeah. he sees the F word written on the walls and in the bathroom right. and stuff, and yeah. he's like so violently angry about this yeah. word and he wants to work so hard to erase it and stuff like i think that's starting to show where he's really thinking maybe a little bit more about others like thinking about i think he's thinking about his sister phoebe seeing that seeing that word and it you know tarnishing her innocence like maybe she's right. never seen it before and he doesn't want her to see that so interesting this is written in 1951 there's some there's some language that is some outdated but it it really fits the can the can yeah <laughs> i need to go <laughs> to the can see <laughs> but yeah. it still fits it, it, it's good that way i think a big part in the book where he is protecting someone's innocence that's not even innocence is the part when he's in the hotel and the prostitute comes right and he just wants to talk to her basically yeah and she's kind of like well what <laughs> You know, yeah. she she wants to just get down to business and leave. And he's like, hold on, hold on. I Don't you want to just talk for a while? Like he toggles around so much. Like uh, when he meets the guy in the elevator and he's like, hey, buddy, do you want to have a good time? And it sounds like a good idea. But then I think when he actually meets this prostitute and she's, I, I think it's important that it's mentioned in the book that she's young like him. Yeah. It feels like, okay, this is somebody who's still got innocence to protect. By the end of the book, he sees Phoebe on the carousel, and he's just he's just content to watch her go around and around and try and grab the gold ring, which was a thing that they used to have that uh, kids could grab to get a free ride or something. It was like this ring as he went around. And he says, the kids almost fall off, but it's okay because even if they do fall off, you know, it's okay. They're trying to get the ring. So that's him accepting like that. It's beautiful. You don't need to stop someone from advancing and trying to get worldly things or trying to grow up, trying to have, you know, things they want to do in their life. It's beautiful just that they're human and just that they're going through the process. A lot of people don't know, you know, Holden and the Caulfield family show up in other stories that aren't published uh, now, but were, you know, showed up in uh, magazines because back in the day, what he, what J.D. Salinger really wanted to be was just a New York, a New Yorker short story writer. That was his life's goals. Then short stories were very popular and magazines like know, Collier's and uh, Saturday Evening Post and New Yorker, they had millions of subscribers and a big part of it was these short stories. And so that's what he was, was a short story writer and he wrote other stories with the Caulfields. One's called The Last and Best of Peter Pans. It's about his elder brother going into the army. Another one's called The Ocean Full of Bowling Balls. And it's about the day that his brother Allie dies. And Holden's actually in this one just briefly. In the story in the book, Catcher in the Rye, uh, Allie dies of leukemia. But in this story, they're at a summer home and Holden's on the porch and Allie and DB are swimming in the ocean and a wave comes and Allie has some kind of heart condition and it kills him. And so DB comes and carries Allie 
to Holden. Holden standing on the porch, uh, seeing it. That's like war, right? The war taking innocence. It's like random. It's mm-hmm. like just the way the world is. It's just a wave that took him. You know. So there's a couple other stories where Holden is mentioned by his older brother in passing and saying that he was killed during one of the landings in the Pacific during World War II or if he's or he might be just missing in action in the war. That's the kind of the last pieces that we get of Holden um, as to what might be happening to him now. A documentary thing kept bothering me was it kept showing the same picture of uh, JD Salinger crossing his arms and his arms are so hairy. They're like <laughs> werewolf arms. I know. <laughs> but, can you do about that so say yeah you really can't do any of us have that problem there's nothing you can if you trim it down people are gonna be like do you cut your arm hair <laughs> you, could, you could dye it you could dye it a lighter yeah, color that's true yeah just for men <laughs> i'd like to walk in on somebody are you dying, dying your, arm. your arm hair yeah yeah i think i am <laughs> Besides Holden, Jay Salinger really moved on and became obsessed with writing this family called the Glass Family. Um, There were seven children that were all geniuses and were all on a quiz TV show at different times. And his most famous book, besides Catcher in the Rye, is called Franny and Zoe. Um, There are two stories that go together. They're about two siblings in this family, the Glass Family. Franny is having a sort of a religious crisis or even a mental breakdown. And her brother Zoe talks to her. And the whole thing is two conversations. There are three conversations, basically, is the whole book. It's not, nothing else happens in the book. Um, in the Glass family, the oldest sibling is the greatest genius and most, in, uh, you know, spiritually ascended and all this. And his, he is Seymour. And in one of J.D. Salinger's other stories, probably his other most famous short story is called A Perfect Day for a Banana Fish. Have you guys read that? Uh, I've heard of it. Yeah. So, Perfect Day for a Banana Fish. Um, is ends with Seymour Glass uh, committing suicide. And so the rest of the Glass stories are the children, the other brothers and sisters trying to deal with why this, you know, the greatest of them committed suicide and, you know, to find some meaning in moving on. And again, I think it's framed in an uh, existential uh, from World War II, after you went through all the war and you saw all this death, everything was random. And there was when you see so much death, it feels like there's no meaning except the meaning of just existing and living. I think the Glass family is trying to come to terms with that and still have spirituality in the face of this existential crisis of the oldest kid committing suicide. I think that's what J.D. Salinger did through the rest of his life, was to try and find some spiritual meaning in life through his PTSD, where everything felt meaningless. Anyway, at the, at the end of Franny and Zoe, it's just probably my favorite section of anything Salinger ever wrote. It's this, this, this little piece about Zoe is talking to Franny on the phone, and he's talking about why you should live and why you should, why you should go do the things you do. And he said, you do it for the fat lady. Um, that's, a, that's a famous term for Salinger is the fat lady. And uh, Zoe said that Seymour told him a story. He said that, you know, Zoe didn't want to go polish his shoes to be on this game show. And Seymour told him, oh, you don't do it for yourself. You don't do it for the audience. You do it for the fat lady. And Zoe was trying to explain that the fat lady was some cancer-ridden fat lady on a porch somewhere listening to the show and that the fat lady is Christ himself. And Franny had been told the same thing by Seymour at a different time about the fat lady. Basically, what it comes down to is you live for the benefit of others 
because there is something Christ-like in all of us. Christ is not necessarily a Christian story. Christ is sort of an example for J.D. Salinger of spiritual purity and transcendence, but that's it. that exists in all of us. And so you live because it exists in all of us and it's worth living because of that. I read his son and wife are the executors of his estate, and I, I know they were set to publish some of his stuff, but did they, do you know if they ever did? No, they haven't. Matthew Salinger did a New York Museum of Art uh, Salinger exhibition in late 2019, mm, okay. and had like his typewriter and a bunch of personal photos and letters that had never been released. And the photos were actually pretty cool. I'd never seen them before. They were like Salinger just at his house and with his grandkids. And But anyway... Uh, Matthew Salinger said, yes, we will release them. It'll be, you know, he keeps pushing out the date, basically, but it'll be in the next five years, something like that, five to 10 years, but they will be released. I heard there's a follow-up book coming. It's uh, Catcher in the Rye Infinity War. Yeah, but, you know, J.D. Salinger wrote every day of his life for like 12 hours a day. So there's lots of material. Didn't Salinger say he basically had 11 completed works just locked away yeah that's probably true didn't want to publish to me why not publish those why not share those with the world i think one of the problems is he started to see a deterioration in salinger's writing at the very end his last published story was in 1965 it was called hapworth uh something anyway and it got just unreadable like like no critic liked it it was Seymour age at age Seymour Glass. He became obsessed with this family he created called the Glass yep. family. Mm-hmm. And it was Seymour writing a letter from camp at age seven. And it was like super long. And most people didn't finish reading it. I've never read it. But apparently it's almost unreadable. Like it gets so much into religious thoughts and pontifications and sidelines and stuff that it's not really a story. And so if Salinger went along that path for the rest of his life, it's possible that there aren't really like readable stories yeah true he, he was a scientologist for a while and then he uh was a christian scientist and yeah. then he uh <laughs> it, it uh in the book by his daughter claimed that he he uh he went through a fad where he was drinking his own urine yeah, yeah. so yeah. Uh, it might have been a little kooky <laughs> yeah his his daughter is not a fan <laughs> his son is a fan but his daughter is not <laughs> Um, who knows? Like, yeah, who knows what would be locked away? Who knows what he said? Dodgeball when he goes, I drink my own urine because I like the taste. <laughs> <laughs> After listening to the documentary about Salinger, it just sounded like he kind of went off the deep end there. And it's a shame because it, someone that could write this, which is hands down my favorite book, and it's not even close. What other thoughts did he have that maybe he just right. didn't collect? The sadness, I think, for Sal- in Salinger's life was that his, of his first marriage fell apart. and. Mm-hmm. because he retreated into the bunker. He didn't take his own advice. He should have found joy in his marriage and in her as a person, but he didn't. He went back to the work to try and find joy in his work, but you can't really find it there. You find it in other people as as the fat lady. He was drinking um, too much urine. Yeah. Yeah, he was. He had a detox. So. You can't have too much of a good thing, Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. urine poisoning. I, I just there's a when I think about this book, I think about like the word restless. There's yeah. a there's a restlessness in Holden that like I can feel, and it makes me feel rest. Like it's a thing that almost like ignites a restlessness in me. Like yeah. just his seeking and 
searching for something, you know, for for a girl that's worthy of his attention or just for people that he thinks are his intellectual equal, you know, that's what Holden's looking for or just a true friend or or someone that he doesn't think is a phony or he's just always searching and seeking for something. I mean, he's on the move through the whole book. I mean, yeah. It's always from place to place every moment. He can't find anything that will satisfy, you know, what he's looking for. I liked his pickup line. Did you ever pick you pick that up in his uh, biography? His pickup line was, I'm J.D. Salinger, and I wrote The Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> it's direct and to the point. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's all I had to say. That was pretty funny. Yeah. And then I always thought, you know, if, if the if there was no Second World War, uh, what he'd be doing. And because right before um, the war started, he was a entertainment director on a cruise ship. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Whoa, awesome! <laughs> I know. Yeah. The guy that wrote this book did that. Yeah, he yeah. was entertainment director. Can you imagine even in the 40s, cruise ship entertainment guy? Oh, man. The uh, ass slapping sports action. Yeah. Yeah, what do you um, got, man? I got a uh, Korean baseball, man. That's what's been keeping me, uh, keeping me motivated. As far as uh, winning sports back, Korean baseball um, organization has had a, had a deal with ESPN, and they're showing games every day at five thirty in the morning, uh, and then they're really? replaying, replaying them later. But uh, yeah, it's really crazy though because there's no ass slapping going on. I was waiting for it, like after the game or you know after a home run in the dugout, and they they get close, like they'd slap the helmet, they they pat the helmet. Matt, do you know what they do over there that is awesome? Uh-huh. The Korean baseball league is famous for their bat flips. They have oh yeah. Just go to YouTube and Google Korean baseball bat flips. It's an awesome video. So yeah, Yeah. lack of ass slapping is my only complaint. Otherwise, I love Korean baseball. All right. Thanks everyone for listening to Think Funny Podcast for Aaron Donnelly and Nate Sadler and Matt Donnelly. Uh, We'll see you guys next week. Be sure to check us out on Twitter, Think Funny Pod C1, and if you like, email us. It's thinkfunnypodcast at gmail.com. He wrote a letter to them and included a cartoon that had Chaplin holding his penis. Thanks for listening to Think Funny. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, and tell a friend. If you have comments or topics for the guys, you can email them at thinkfunnypodcast at gmail.com. And check out aarondonley.com for today's show notes and much more. Mm-hmm.